Good morning. So glad to see you all here. It is uh, wonderful to be with this congregation. Um, amazing to hear that this church has been here 280 years. It's almost unbelievable uh, to be in a place like this. So wonderful to see the testimony of God's faithfulness over so many years and being in your midst. So really happy to be here uh, with you. As uh, Patrick said, my name is Nate Grolsema, and um, I, I do work at uh, the seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm the director of admissions. Some of you might not know what a seminary is. Um, my kids, you know, they often confuse seminary and cemetery. Um, it's not where people go to die. Um, it is uh, a place where we train men and women for Christian service, and we're training uh, up pastors to go preach the Word of God. And so it's a blessing to serve there. I'm so glad that you're going to get to have a couple of our students over the next few weeks. I trust and hope you'll be blessed by their ministry. Even more, I trust and hope Patrick will be blessed by some time off. That is a blessing to him. So, really glad to be here. Um, You could pray for the seminary, pray for the work that's going on there. Um, It's important, as you guys know, to have pastors who are prepared and equipped to handle the Word of God rightly. So, you could pray for us. You may open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be beginning our reading in... Chapter 7, verse 73. We're going to read through chapter 8, verse 8. And uh, before we read God's word, let's pray and ask for God's blessing of his word. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this particular word this morning. By the power of your Spirit, we ask that you would open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, our hearts to believe, and our wills to obey. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Well, join with me as we read now God's Word from Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73 through 8. Verse 8. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. 
and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, dear friends in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the questions that I've been asking regularly of my children recently is this. Do you understand? Do you understand? It's a question that I give to them oftentimes after after I've given them a corrective or a directive. And when I'm asking, do you understand, I am seeking to confirm that they have heard what I've said. And that they have, that I've made myself clear to them in a way that they can understand. So that they are not just hearing what I've said, but they know what I'm expecting of them. I don't want them to just hear my words. I want them to take them to heart. And to follow what I've asked them to do. That desire that I have when communicating with my children is the same desire that God has for his children. He wants us not only to hear what he has said, but to know how to respond. And we know that, right? Because God has spoken to us not in a language that we cannot understand. He's given us words that we can understand. He's preserved for us Scripture, his words in the Bible for thousands of years so that we can hear what he's saying. And follow what he commands. He wants us to understand what he has said to us. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, these verses that we've just read, that's exactly what we find happening here with the Israelites. They are listening to God's word spoken to them and they hear it and they understand. They understand. This morning... uh, I'm going to follow a very basic outline. I'm not sure what Patrick normally does, if he gives you an outline or not. We're going to follow a very simple outline. We're going to spend the bulk of our time going verse by verse through this text. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open. Keep them open. I want you to see what is here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And then at the end, we'll consider how we might apply this text in our own Christian lives. Our passage begins in chapter 7, verse 73, with a transition statement. It's really a transition statement. Here's what we read. And when the seventh month had come, 
the people of Israel were in their towns. This sentence closes the preceding section. It really actually closes the entire first half of the book of Nehemiah. If you're familiar with the book, or maybe you're unfamiliar, uh, we're right in the middle of the book. And this sentence really is summing up and closing what's happened in the first half of the book. What it tells us is that all these people, if you look at chapter 7, you see a list of returned exiles. Name after name after name. This sentence tells us that all of these people listed in chapter 7, probably even more than that, were in their towns. They had finished their work on the city's walls, and then they returned home. Just as you do when you return after a work trip. You go out, you finish your work, you come home. That's what's happened. And so the first half of the book, uh, which the focus has been really on the constitution of these walls, the, the building up of Jerusalem's walls once again, it's a great rebuilding project. It's complete. It's all done. The walls are built. And the people have returned to their homes. And so we're closing this preceding section. But this verse also opens the next section. That's why it's a transition statement. It indicates to us that it's the seventh month. Now, we have no concept of what that means. We don't know what the seventh month means, why that's important. But the Israelites would. They would, because in Leviticus chapter 23, here's what is said. Leviticus 23, 24. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets, a holy convocation. So when the seventh month came, chapter 8, verse 1, tells us that all the people left their towns to gather in the city square. To gather in the city square. And they are doing that holy convocation. It's a, it's a gathering. It's a set-apart gathering of the people. And so, really, now, beginning here at chapter 8, verse 1, and through the rest of the book, we have a different focus. It's no longer, the focus of the book is no longer going to be on the reconstitution of walls, no longer on the reconstitution of the city, but rather the reconstitution of a people. Of a people. The holy people, God's people, Israel. And we're captured by this new focus immediately in verse 1. As we see that approximately 50,000 returned exiles have gathered together as one man, the text says. God had brought out these Israelites from Babylon, from the exile, the Babylonian exile, that they might serve and worship him together. That's why God had gathered them up, brought them back. And here they are in the holy city, rebuilt. And that's what they're doing. They're here to worship God. Now, interestingly, uh, in these first two verses, we have language of one man and language of assembly. And later on in the New Testament, the New Testament picks up this kind of language to speak of the church. Uh, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, for example, we, we learn that 
the dividing wall has been broken down and God has made together one man in place of two. The, the nations come in. And so we have here language that precedes that. But the New, the New Testament is going to pick up on this language to speak of the church. But I really think the sense here of one man is a bit simpler than that at this point. I think the sense uh, that they were one man, these people were one man, is that they had a unified desire. They had a unified desire. They wanted to hear God speak to them through his written word. So did you notice when we were reading, whose idea was it to read the word of God in this gathering? Whose idea was it? You often think it might be the leaders. But it wasn't the leaders. It was the people. They asked Ezra, bring the book. Read to us. And how joyfully that request must have come to Ezra. Uh, I've, I've not known a single pastor who hasn't been delighted by his congregation when they just love to hear preaching and teaching. Oh, oh, what joy comes to the leaders when you hear the people want to hear God's word preached to them. And so the people ask Ezra, and then he brings the law before them. It's an assembly composed of men and women. And uh, as the ESV, which is what I was reading from, says in verse 2, all who could understand what they heard. And so commentators think, there were probably a lot of children in this gathering as well. A lot of children. What did Ezra read? He reads from the law of Moses, or the Torah. The first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, you might know it as. And we're not told exactly what section of the Torah he read from. We don't know if it was Deuteronomy. We don't know if it was Leviticus or Numbers. But, here's what we do know. Ezra read, verse 3 says, from early morning until midday. Something like six hours, most likely. Uh, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I'm just kind of looking at my clock. Like, when are these 30 minutes going to be up? Um, these people were there for six hours. And attentive, it says. That's almost unbelievable. How could that be? Six hours and they were attentive to the reading. We're going to come back to this idea in just a few minutes. When we're thinking about applying the text. They were attentive to the reading. But for now, let's just simply acknowledge that attentiveness means that the people were locked in. They were heeding what was being said. The word was not going in one ear and out the other, as the saying goes. They not only asked to hear the word read, they were attentive as they listened. Were any of you men, any of you men happen to be at those old promise keepers gatherings? Any of you guys there? We got one. All right. I was not there. Uh, but I've seen the, I've seen the photos. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the photos. You can look them up. It's, uh, it's really quite amazing to look at those photos of those promise keepers gatherings. They're, 
met in D.C., and there were thousands and thousands of people filling the streets, filling the square. And I have often thought that what we see here in Nehemiah 8 must, resemble, must have resembled something like those gatherings. Because there's thousands of people gathered together in the midst of a very impressive city with a speaker speaking to them from a large platform. But while there might be similarities, there's, of course, many differences. Uh, even in the 90s, there was audio technology and video technology so that people way, way, way in the back would have been able to hear the speaker and see the speaker on video screens. But these, of course, didn't exist in the 5th century B.C. And so, in order that the people would hear the word, the people build a wooden platform. And literally, in the Hebrew, that word for wooden platform is tower. It's a big, big platform. It had to be large enough to accommodate Ezra. And then we see those 13 helpers that are listed in verse 4. They were all on this platform, so it had to be big enough, but also high enough so that he could be seen by all these people. It says that they saw Ezra as he opened the book in the sight of all the people. But notice, too, there's just a small little comment there. That this platform was built for a purpose. It was built for a purpose in verse 4. And I think it was a very singular purpose. And I think it's, it's helpful just to reflect on that just a moment. Especially given our current age. Um, you can look up churches all over the place. And what their platforms are designed to do is be a stage for performance. A stage for performance. But this platform that we read here was not built for that, was it? It was tall enough, high enough, big enough, so that the people could hear the word of God. That's what it was used for. That's what it was used for. And church, I, I pray that you and me, that we would be content to hear the word of God plainly read, plainly preached. We have no desire for anything more, no appetite for something more, some word, some message dressed up in flash and flare that sounds amazing, but is void, void of its divine content. Even more importantly than seeing Ezra and his assistants, the people could see the book. They could see the book. He opened it in the sight of all the people. And this would probably be a scroll, so it was probably unraveled. The people could see it. And by opening the book plainly in the sight of all the people, it would be clear that Ezra was not speaking the words or commandments of men. He was not speaking his own commandments. He was speaking the words of God recorded for the people. I'm going to encourage you. I, I don't know what your normal habit is, your normal practice is. I'm going to encourage you. Take your Bibles to church with you. Take them with you. As you sit there with the Bible in your lap and you hear the preaching of God's Word, as you hear it read, 
It will help to remind you that what you are hearing is not the commandments of men. These are not new commandments for you. These are God's words. These are His commandments. He's speaking to you. And it actually helps the preacher also. Because he's reminded that the power is not in his own words. The power is in the word because it is God's word. Now, you may not always attend this church. Uh, Perhaps work will take you somewhere else. Or perhaps, as a young person, you'll go off to school somewhere. Or perhaps the Lord will have you call a new minister someday. And then you're going to have to think, what matters most to me? What am I looking for? And this is a good reminder here in this verse and in in this chapter that the most important thing is that the preacher is opening God's word to you. That is the most important thing. The top of the list. Find and be sure that the preacher is opening God's word to you. And the people receive it as such, don't they? They receive these words as God's word. In verse 5, they stand out of respect. They stood out of respect when the law was read, just as one does when an important person walks in the room. The president walks in, what do all the people do? They stand. It's a sign of respect. But in addition to standing, they respond to God's word. We see this in verse 6. First, Yahweh, uh, Ezra, excuse me, blesses Yahweh, the great God. He pronounces a, a blessing or a benediction. In our tradition or in my tradition, maybe you all do this as well, usually a benediction comes at the end of the service. The preacher is standing from the front as God's representative to you. And he pronounces a benediction, a blessing upon you from God himself. But here, Ezra doesn't pronounce God's blessing on the people. He is instead leading God's people, pronouncing a benediction, a blessing to God as a leader of God's people. And these Israelites had reason upon reason to bless God, to praise Him, to worship Him. They were gathered together after many years of exile. They were back in Jerusalem, the holy city. They were together. They were hearing God's word to them again. They had reason upon reason to bless God. And so Ezra blesses Yahweh. And the people then add their words of affirmation and agreement. They they say, Amen. Amen. And they lift up their hands. They're active participants, aren't they? They're not just standing there in the crowd, letting the word just roll off their back. They're active participants. This is, it's almost as if an ongoing conversation is happening between God and his people. God speaks to them. They speak back to God. They raise their hands, expressing their need and dependence. And then verse 6 adds, then that they bowed their heads. And they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. I really think this is an amazing passage. And really, truly an amazing thing for us to see. Because this congregation, these people are in awe of God. 
They're just completely taken by God and his word. They're not going through their religious motions, so to speak, as we can find in some Christians. They're just going through the motions. These are people that have been moved by God, moved through his word, and they're appropriately humble. They recognize that they completely depend upon God. They're realizing that. And they perceive that God's mercy has been abundant to them. And what did they do then? They worship. They worship. And my friends, that's how all true worship begins. That's where it begins. It begins in a heart that has perceived that God has moved towards you in mercy. When you perceive that, how can you do anything else but worship? How can you do anything else? So, my friends, where do we learn of God's mercy? Where do we learn of God's mercy? How do we remind ourselves that God's mercy has been shown to us? We see it in His Word, don't we? We learn of it in His Word. God has revealed Himself to us. He has spoken to us of His goodness. He has given us testimony and evidence of His mercy to generations previous to us. And, of course, that He has given us Christ to save us. That He has given us His Spirit to lead us and to guide us. His Word to help us. Now, as Ezra read portions of Scripture, it seems that he took grace to allow the 13 Levites in verse 7 which are not to be confused with the 13 assistants on the platform, uh, to allow these 13 Levites to move through the congregation for all these people so that they could make sure the people understood what was being read to them and made sure the people could understand. And then verse 8 adds details to this process. And then we read this. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And so what we learn here is that the law was not just read. It was not just heard. It was understood. It was understood. Praise God. Praise God. Luke 24, verses, verse 45, makes it really clear to us that understanding is a gift from God. Understanding is a gift from God, which is why we praise Him. And that's why we ought to be praying. Praying on Sunday morning. Praying throughout the service. Praying before the Word of God is read and preached. That God would make it clear and understood to us. God gives us understanding. It ultimately comes from Him. Amazingly, and in a really humbling way, God actually uses preaching. Preaching to help us understand. It's one of the main points in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Paul talks about the, the preaching of God's Word. It's, it's foolish to those who are dying, but it's life to those who are being saved. I don't know Patrick very well. I've had two conversations with him. But I trust, I trust that 
he is spending his weeks laboring over these texts that he's due to preach. Giving himself to its study. And that's exactly what you want, dear friends. It's exactly what you want. You want him to come to you on Sunday morning, being filled up, so that he has understood what God is speaking to him, to you. And so that in turn, when he comes to preach to you God's word, then you too are ready to understand the text, that we might cling to its promises, heed its warnings, that we might believe the gospel once again. I'm a young preacher. I've only preached a few times. Hopefully it's not showing too much today. Um, preaching for understanding takes a lot of work. I don't know a lot about preaching yet. That is one thing I've learned. Preaching for understanding takes a lot of work. There's a lot of labors to be done. It's made me appreciate even more my own pastors. The work that they do, week in and week out. In season and out of season. It's a good reminder for us, as those who hear the word more than preaching the word, that we ought to be thankful for our, our leaders who are pouring themselves into the text. But let me ask you this. We want our pastors, our preachers, to be doing the work, laboring to understand the text. But have you thought that listening also takes work? Have you thought about that? Listening also takes work. You need to prepare. Uh, as I said, I work at a seminary. When I was a seminary student, I had several courses in preaching. How to preach. The art of preaching. How to uh, understand the text. How to help people to understand the text. There's one class I never had. How to listen. And... That's probably right. You can't do everything in seminary. You can't keep students there forever. But I say it to highlight that we probably don't think about listening a whole lot. We really don't. I, I, I don't think about it a whole lot. And so with our remaining minutes this morning, here's what I want to do. I want us to briefly think on this question. This question. How shall we receive the word? How shall we receive the word? And allowing this passage to be our guide, let's just consider three answers to this question, okay? How shall we receive the word? First, we should receive it with reverence. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. The people stood out of respect, believing that God was speaking to them. Here's what uh, Matthew Henry, a, a commentator, writes. He says, It becomes servants to stand when their master speaks to them. In honor to their master and to show a readiness to do as they are bidden. Now, we don't physically have to stand Every time the word of God is read or heard. But the posture of our hearts ought to be the same as those Israelites who stood out of respect for the reading of God's word. God doesn't just look at our outward religious religiosity. He looks at our heart, right? Our heart ought to be reverent 
to God. How quickly we forget that the Bible is indeed the divine instructions of a king, but also the infallible guidance of our Heavenly Father. It's infallible guidance from a God who loves us. So may we hear the reading and receive the preaching of the Bible with complete reverence because it is God's word, him speaking to us. Secondly, how shall we receive the word? With attentiveness. If God is speaking to us, then we ought to be attentive, right? It follows. Matthew Henry writes again, the word of God commands attention and deserves it. The word of God commands attention and deserves it. Verse 3 says, And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, each one of us, if we're really truly honest, each one of us has struggled at times to give attention to the reading of God's word and the preaching of God's word. Myself included. Um, In fact, in a season of my childhood, I attributed my thoughtlessness, my carelessness in attentiveness to the fact that my dad, who was my preacher, I just heard his voice too much. Surely I couldn't, surely I couldn't listen with attentiveness on Sunday mornings for 35 minutes when throughout the week, I hear his voice all the time. How dumb. (laughs) Really a bad uh, reason to be thoughtless and careless. We struggle with attentiveness, attentiveness for all sorts of reasons. Some of them are poor reasons. Some of them are completely legitimate. Uh, We have squirmy children. Well, that makes it hard to listen and be attentive sometimes. Lack of sleep. Sometimes that's on your own accord. Sometimes you just have a bad night of sleep and it makes it really hard to listen that long. Zoning out. But here's the reality. Here's the reality. To listen with attentiveness requires preparation and takes effort. You can get the best night of sleep. It still requires preparation and effort. And we ought to make every effort because this is God's word. One, uh, one pastor joked uh, that the hour before Sunday morning is the least sanctified in any family's life. And uh, every joke has some truth, or it wouldn't be funny. And I can confirm, um, it's really hard to concentrate on Sunday mornings in the worship service when the hour before the service is hectic as I'll get out. It really is. And so, you might just think about taking some steps to prepare. And and it really is this simple. Saturday night, you might set out your church clothes. You might plan a simple breakfast for the next morning. Set your Bible by the door so that you're ready to go. And, go to sleep on time. Go to sleep on time so that you have as good of an opportunity as you'll get to be attentive um, I assume that perhaps there are some here that are business people. When you have a big meeting coming up, when you have a big meeting, 
Do you just walk in there willy-nilly? No preparation? I'm just going to wing it. No. When you got a big meeting, you get enough sleep, you do your homework, you get prepared, you have all your papers organized just right, I need to make the big pitch, i got to be ready to go. Think of church that way. When you come on Sunday morning, you are meeting with God. He is here to meet with you. You want to be ready. Do your best to be ready. So as we listen to the word read and preached, let us follow the example of these Israelites. Listening with attentiveness. Laboring to pay attention. Doing our best to follow along. Seeking to understand the text with our minds and our hearts. So the people were not only reverent and attentive, finally, they were eager to obey. How shall we receive the word? With eagerness to obey. Now, we just see the beginnings of disobedience in our verses. We see just the beginnings. But if you were to read on from Nehemiah 8, what you'll see and what will become clear to you is that the people responded. They responded with worship here in chapter 8, but they're going to go on and respond with confession of their sins. They're going to repent of their, their sins against God, and they're going to turn to Him. Their reverence and their attentiveness led to action. It produced a response. And when we listen to the Bible, we too ought to be eager to put it into practice. And again, this kind of listening takes work. Work in the moment to hear what's expected of you, but also work afterwards to not forget what you've heard, to actually put it into practice and to apply what you've heard. For those of you who are familiar with your New Testaments, if you think about it, some passages might come to mind on this very topic. The New Testament has a lot to say about how we hear, how we are to hear the Word of God and receive it. Think of James 1, verse 22. It says, Be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. One of those famous parables, the parable of the sower, speaking about the sower who casts seed on all sorts of different soil. And the, the seed is compared to God's word, right? And the soil are the different people and their hearts that are receiving it. And there's that good soil which bears fruit. This is in Luke chapter 8. Just a few verses later after telling this parable, Jesus issues this simple exhortation. This is what I will end on. Simple exhortation. He says in Luke 8 verse 18, Jesus says, take care then how you hear. Take care then how you hear. We have a responsibility to be good listeners. We have a responsibility. Jesus says to us, take care then how you hear. So, my dear friends in the Lord Jesus Christ, God desires to speak to you. He desires to speak to us in his written word. He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. He has told us of His goodness. He wants to instruct us in godly living. He wants to lead us into salvation 
Faith comes through hearing. Are you listening? Are you listening? Have you understood? Have you understood? Let's pray. Let's ask for God to help us. Oh God, we are so grateful for your word that you would speak to us, that you would tell us about who you are, that you would tell us about Jesus, your Son, who has come to reconcile us to you, that you would tell us our sinful condition. You would tell us the solution to our sin in Jesus. You would instruct us in godly living. Oh God, I pray that these words that we've heard read, these words that we've heard preached, would not fall on deaf ears, but would fall on ears that are eager with attentiveness and reverence to respond to you. And understanding your word, putting it in practice. Oh God, help us. We need your help. We need the help of your spirit. And so bless these, your people, as they seek to honor you with their lives. We thank you once again. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.